0: Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you, so let's get to it. Well, you know, this isn't a text that's probably on anybody's uh, coffee mug by any means. You know, you didn't think you were going to come listen to a sermon about sending away foreign wives. Uh, oh, there I am. There uh, you are. And uh, really, I'm not even going to talk about the foreign wives part. Uh, I know you're on the edge of your seat waiting to know why in the world that's even in the Bible. Uh, We'll get to that. I've got about three weeks left in Ezra. uh, And then I'm going to take a little bit of a break that I take every summer from preaching. We'll get some other people up here to preach. That's not really a break from work. Uh, It just gives me a minute to kind of plan for next year because this takes about 10 to 15 hours of my week every week. And Sunday keeps coming up every seven days. So every summer I take a little bit of a break to try to get ahead on things and then get prepared to go into the next year. So I got about three weeks left in Ezra uh, before we finish this book of the Bible. And uh, on the third week, we'll talk about what in the world is going on with the foreign wives and what does this have anything to do with our lives? But today what I want to do is look at how Ezra is leading these people. I think it's, it's a master class on leadership. And what we need more than ever in our world, in our country, and in our churches is good leaders. Uh, we live in a world where uh, there, there are not very many good leaders. There are not very many courageous leaders, so to speak. And the result of that is what we see oftentimes in the world that we have, which is a lot of division. We have leaders who are more concerned with power than actually influencing people to healthy decisions and actually helping helping people see uh, their place in society and helping each other love one another. And unfortunately, this even happens in the church. And so this text is really a huge text for me as I preach it to myself. What kind of leader ought I to be of a sent church? And it's a leader for any of you who aspire to be a leader, And it's not bad to aspire to be a leader. In fact, I think we should. You should want to be a leader of yourself, first and foremost, and a leader of your family and a leader of whatever God might call you to lead. Who knows? You might be a leader at a cent one day. And if you do, I want you to lead not according to the way the world says to lead, but to lead according to the way that God would say to lead. And we see a great example of this in Ezra. Now, I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump in, but I want to give you a little bit of context on Ezra because Ezra is a very old book. It happens about 400 years before Jesus walks the earth, and it's not a very popular book. And the reason it's not very popular is because there's no miracles in it. There's no water to wine. Nobody walks on water. It's just really ordinary people doing really ordinary things for the kingdom of God. But I don't know about you guys. I find that really encouraging because I've never turned water to wine. I've never walked on water. I can barely swim sometimes. (laughs) I am a very ordinary person doing very ordinary things. And sometimes when I read this book, I don't find my place in it. But when I read the story of Ezra and the story of Nehemiah, I can begin to see how we as a small church of ordinary people could make an extraordinary difference because of how good and great our God is. And that is what we see in this book. The, the Israelites were sinners, and so they had rebelled against God, and God had allowed them to be taken into slavery by the Babylonians. And He said, you're going to be there for 70 years. They weren't quite in slavery for 70 years because God is gracious. His mercy always outweighs His justice. And He releases them after about 50 or so years to go back home. And they go back home, and they have two missions, to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Now, as Christians, this is very relevant for us because we have the same mission but on a bigger scale. Jesus has sent us not to rebuild Jerusalem, but to rebuild the world. All of it is His, and we are to restore all of it for His namesake, to bring it all under His kingdom and under His rule and His reign. And we are to build a temple, but it's a different sort of temple. It's not a temple made of stone and bricks like the one we're setting in today. No, the temple that Jesus calls us to build is the church, his people. It's made up of people, as Peter would say. It is a living temple. And so as we go out, we're drawing people into this temple. We're building it up. We're building the people up. And we're restoring the world as we do it. And what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is true for us as Christians, but it's at a larger scale. And the really good news before I pray is this. Our leader is a lot better than Blake Farley. Our leader is a lot better than Ezra. Our leader is Jesus himself. He is the senior pastor of a Ascent Church. He is the senior pastor of the church. And that is why I want to pray. Because without his help, I'm going to say a bunch of stuff that makes no sense and is of no help in this dark world. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the way that you have loved us. That you would give us a text. You would give us a word that is outside of ourselves. God, I, I don't want to be preaching based upon whatever's going on in culture. I don't want to preach based upon whatever the senators decided this week or whatever CNN or Fox decided was important this week. I want to preach based upon something that has lasted, that has stood the test of time for thousands of years. God, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, as I look around and I see even the smartest people amongst me, I begin to think that maybe they don't even know what they're doing. God, we're all trying to figure this thing called life out together. And God, I am so grateful that you didn't just leave us in the dark, but you gave us a book that was inspired by your spirit, that was written across cultures over thousands of years from 40 different authors, and they all tell one story, that's the story of Jesus. And God, as we come to this word today, I pray that you would speak to us. God, I pray that anything that I say that is from me, that is not true, would be blown away like the chaff in the wind. And God, I pray that those things that I say that are true would be highlighted in our minds, and that we would leave this place not just knowing more, but knowing something that would actually change the way that we live our lives, that we would not just believe, but we would live like we believe. God, it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So we see first uh, in this text, we see the three different kind of ways that we can lead. There's three different types of ways that we all lead, no matter what you lead, whether you're a parent and you're leading your family uh, or you're a CEO of a huge organization, it doesn't really matter. You're going to lead in these three ways. And the first way is kind of the most basic way of leadership, and it's honestly the worst kind of leadership. It's not bad. It's needed. uh, But if you just lead in this way, you're leading as the world leads, and it's not going to be super effective for you. And that first way that we lead is through directions and decisions. It is, I'm the person in power, and so I'm telling you what to do. This is exactly what is going to happen, and here's when it's going to happen. We see this in verse 5 of chapter 10, where Ezra does this. It says, then Ezra got up and made, he made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath to do what had been said. So they took the oath. You see, Ezra didn't say, now if you guys want to do this, here's what you should do, and here's what I would suggest you do. No, he said, I am making you do this. And if you're a parent, you understand this type of leadership. You know, there's sometimes you just have to make decisions for your children. I told you to make your bed. I'm not going to argue or negotiate with you about making your bed. I'm the dad. I'm bigger than you. I made you, and I can make another one like you if I want to. So make your bed. This is the kind of leadership we see here. And it's the kind of leadership that I try to avoid as a church leader as much as possible. Now, there are times in which I have to do this. Uh, In fact, my uh, title at Ascent, if you want to give it that, I'm not the senior pastor. There's churches that have that, and that's fine. I'm not against it. But just for my own psyche, I don't call myself senior pastor. I'm not the supreme leader of Ascent Church. Uh, I'm the lead pastor, which means right now, that is what I do. I lead. For this season, I'm the leader of Ascent Church. One day, there will be another leader of Ascent Church if I do my job. If when I leave Ascent, Ascent dies, I did not do my job. I am supposed to just lead for this season, what God has called us to do. And one day there will be somebody else who leads. That is a weight and that is a responsibility. That means at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. At the end of the day, God will hold me responsible for the decisions and the directions of this church. And if you are a leader of a family, if you are a parent, the same is true for you. That at the end of the day, when you stand before God, you will give an account for your children. You will give an account, husbands, for your wives. You will give an account for these things, the Bible tells us. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not personal responsibility involved. You can't control what your children do. But it does mean that at the end of the day, when God looks at us, he looks at those who are leaders, those who he's given responsibility to. And he says, what have you done with what I entrusted you with to lead? I think of uh, President Eisenhower. There's a really kind of powerful story of a letter that he wrote to his daughter when he was trying to decide whether or not to, to drop the nuclear bomb, which is obviously a huge decision to make. Uh, with a lot of lives at effect And he had everybody telling him what he ought to do You know this side said you ought to do this And this side said you ought to do that And he was getting really stressed out about making this decision And uh, he wrote this letter to his daughter And he, he finally he came to the conclusion of it I think it was really therapeutic for him more than anything else But he said at the end of the day Somebody has to make a decision The worst decision is to not make a decision at all Somebody has to make a decision And for this time and in this season I am the one who has to make that decision And then he made a decision And that is what leaders do, or in a lot less eloquent way. Uh, President George Bush, who always had a way of saying things, uh, I love watching on YouTube those presidential gaffes because I'm a public speaker, so I understand how difficult it is to speak. But some are are more funny than others when they say things. Uh, And and President Bush, when he was talking about his job as the president, he said, I'm the decider-in-chief. I decide, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to decide. And in a lot less eloquent way of what Eisenhower maybe said, it's true that this is what we do when we are leading sometimes. And we are held responsible for the decisions that we must make. And if you are in a position of leadership, if you are a parent, if, if you are a leader of uh, a, a work of people who are under you, anybody who reports to you, you need to understand that the world's going to tell you that's a privilege and you ought to use those people to get what you want. But from a biblical perspective, we don't see it as a privilege it should be a really weighty thing, a stressful thing, a responsibility that we must bear. It is not something that I boast in, that I'm the leader of a sin church. It is something that keeps me up at night. It's why I have some gray hairs at 27 years old. Not because I'm scared of you guys, but because I'm going to stand before the God of this universe one day, and I'm going to be held accountable for the decisions that I made. That's why James 3.1 says, Not many of you should want to be teachers, because we will be judged by a stricter standard. That's scary. And that ought to be scary. That's why in the the end of this chapter, chapter 10, Ezra goes to the heads of these families, the leaders of these families. Now, did they make all the bad decisions? No. But who's held responsible? The leaders of these families. And the same is true for you. So if you're a leader, you need to understand it's a very weighty responsibility. And you ought not be the kind of leader, the kind of parent, the kind of church leader who does things just because you're the leader and you throw your weight around. Sometimes you have to make decisions and lead by direction, but not always. Number two, and this is, they get progressively better, progressively more the way we want to lead, I should say. Number two, the second way that we lead is through imitation. Leading by example, you could say. We see this in verse 1. It says, while Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, an extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women, and children gathered around him. The people also wept bitterly. I find that to be super fascinating. He, this also happened in chapter 9 when Ezra was convicted by the Word of God. The people came around him and they also trembled at the Word of God. Ezra is not calling people. He's not telling people to repent. You know, He's not making them feel guilty like some you know, Baptist preacher who preaches about hell all the time, trying to terrify you, and you leave the place feeling worse than <laughs> when you came. I don't know about you guys, but I've been there. You know, It's like, wow, I'm really glad I went to church this morning. I feel like a, a load of potatoes. Um, I don't even know what that means, but I would imagine you wouldn't want to feel like a load of potatoes. And that's how we feel sometimes. Leaders try to make us feel guilty. That's not what Ezra does here, is it? No, he is praying and he is confessing and the people see that and they seek to imitate what he is doing. This is how Jesus actually led us. Uh, Jesus had the power of God, but he did not see that as something to be exploited. Now, if I had the power of God and I wanted to start a movement, I would just force all of you to follow me. There's a reason why I don't have the power of God. I would not use it wisely. When you did something I did not want you to do, I would just like curse you. You know, you would do what I wanted you to do if I was God. This is not what Jesus did, though. Jesus lived the life of a human, giving up all of the rights of divinity. And he led by example. This is why Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul tells us to adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus. This is what it fundamentally means to be a Christian. I am to imitate Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Jesus, because that's all of our goals. Uh, In fact, what we say here at Ascent is that the ultimate goal of discipleship, if you want to know what a Christian is, it's not having a whole bunch of knowledge about the Bible, although that's fine to do. Uh, What being a Christian is, though, is to live as Jesus would live if Jesus were you. No, Jesus isn't you. You're not the Savior of the world. You're not going to die on the cross for sins of all humanity. But wherever you are and however you live, you ought to try to do the things Jesus would do if Jesus had your circumstances and if Jesus were who you were. And that's a lifetime process that we never quite get to, is it, friends? Anybody here living fully like Jesus? No, but what do we do? We we forget what's behind us and we strive forward, striving to imitate Jesus. And this is how we ought to lead as parents. This is how we ought to lead as church leaders or leaders in anything. We want to be the kind of people that we want our people to be. Now, this is uh, a really good thing in one hand, because you don't need any position to be a leader. Kids, you can be a leader in your home by leading by example. You can be a leader at school, even though you're not a teacher, by leading by example. We can all lead. You can be in an organization with 50,000 employees and be at the bottom rung of leadership, and you can still lead by leading by example. It gives us great power to be leaders wherever we are. But it also creates this kind of thing where you better be careful because people are going to follow in what you do. I had a pastor tell me this before we planted Ascent Church. It was very discouraging to hear him say, uh, but it was true. He said, uh, Blake, the things that you hate about Ascent Church in five years will be the very same things that you hate about yourself. <laughs> the, the flaws that you see in yourself will be the flaws that you see in Ascent. And I thought, oh man, that's not true. And here we are three years later, and the things that annoy me about Ascent are the very things that annoy me and annoy my wife as well. You yeah. know. The disorganization or or certain things that I see and I'm like, man, I don't really like that about this. And then I go and I look at my own life and there it is. Why? Because we imitate leaders. It's what happens. And if you're a parent, you understand this. I've heard parents say this all the time. The things that most annoy you about your children are the very characteristics that annoy you about yourself. You're getting on to them for something that you know in the back of your mind you do yourself. And it's like, where did you get this? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So we have to be very careful in the way that we live our lives. Because we will have people who follow us and they will imitate us. Our actions do speak louder than our words. We do not want to be the nutritionist who's obese. We do not want to be the shop teacher who's missing fingers. <laughs> we want to be people who are pursuing what we want our children, what we want those who follow us to be. That does not mean perfection. There is no such thing as perfection. But it does mean when I mess up, I say I'm sorry. It does mean as a pastor, you should look at my Christian life and be able to imitate it. Now that's terrifying. That's terrifying. And I want to say, don't look at me, just look at Jesus. But I can't say that because all over the Bible, my command as an elder is to live a life worthy of imitation. Does that mean I am perfect? No, not at all. But it should mean that you should see growth in me. You should see Blake moving towards Christ's likeness in a way in which you can follow. That's terrifying, but that's exactly what the Bible says. In fact, uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you, As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. That's scary. Part of my job as a pastor is you're supposed to carefully observe my life and then imitate that faith if I'm doing a good job. 1 Peter 5, chapters 2 through 3 says, shepherd God's flock among you. And Peter's talking to guys like me. He says, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you. I'm the pastor, so give me a throne on the stage in a parking spot. No, Peter says, you don't do that. You park in the back. But being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. (laughs) So how do we lead? Well, we lead by decision and direction. But if you want to take it up a level, you lead by imitation. And by the way, if you have kids, you are leading by imitation whether you want to or not. The question is, are you leaving a good example or a bad example? They will imitate it. And they often don't imitate the good things that you do. They often imitate the bad things that you do. That's just the way the world works. Now, the third way that we lead and probably the the primary or the best way that we ought to lead is by leading by setting a culture setting a culture for the people to follow. Because when you've set the culture, people will begin to make decisions that you don't have to tell them because they know what's right. It's formed them into the type of people that you want them to be. Not so concerned with how they do things, but who they are, because if you get the who right, then the how kind of falls into place. And that's exactly what we see as we go to verse 3. It says, Let us therefore make a covenant, or sorry, verse 2, and then verse 3. It says, Then Shechaniah, son of Jehel, an Elamite, responded to Ezra, now, remember, this is not Ezra. This is Shekaniah, one of the followers of Ezra. We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples. Now, did Ezra tell them this or did they come to it by imitating Ezra? They came to it by imitating Ezra. It says, but there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. And then look at this. This is how, you know, a like culture has been set because he comes up with his own solution. Verse 3. Let us therefore make a covenant before our God to send away the foreign wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the command of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Now, here's how, you know, as a leader, you've set a culture. People begin to do the right things even when you are not there. And I'll give you an example of culture that we probably all would understand. And that is in the house. Uh, There are probably things you did in your grandma's house that you did not do in your mother's house. Because there was different cultures that were set. You know, in my mother's house, you did not wear your shoes. In fact, I have PTSD. If I walk into your house, I will take off my shoes immediately. Because I just, the culture was set for me that we don't do that. You know, you keep the carpet clean, you take your shoes off at the door. Now, if I go to my grandma Wendy's house, I do not take my shoes off. I don't even care about taking my shoes off. Why? Well, it's simply because they set different cultures. Different things mattered to them in different ways. And I knew that instinctively. Now, here's when I knew my mom's culture had really set in on me was when I began to tell other people to take off their shoes when my mom wasn't even around. You know, like, I don't even care about your shoes being on, but something inside of me immediately comes out of me and says, we don't wear shoes in this house. So the culture has been set. It's been changed. Uh, I think there's a there's an illustration that kind of points this out really well from the great theologian, Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, I I like it because it really resonated with me. He's talking about his wife. And uh, he said, you know, there was a day I realized my wife had fully trained me. Uh, She had trained me on the day where we were laying in bed together and she said, I'm cold. And he said, I instinctively, without even thinking about it, got up and turned up the AC and as I turned up the heater. And as I was turning up the heater, I realized I wasn't even cold and she didn't even have to ask me to do it. I just knew that I was supposed to do what I was supposed to do because she told me to do it. And he said, you know, she probably called her mom and said, Mama, I trained him. I did it. Which is funny, but it's true. Like there are these things that we find ourselves in as we get into these certain cultures and we begin to make decisions based upon them. Here to scent, there's like little things that I care about that aren't right or wrong things, but because I'm the leader, there's kind of a culture for it. One of those things is we always start on time. We start at 10 o'clock. I tell you we start at 10 o'clock, so we're going to start at 10 o'clock. Everybody who works in production knows we start at 10 o'clock. If Blake's not here, what do we do? We start at 10 o'clock. If the worship band's not here, what do we do? We start at 10 o'clock. If I have to preach the sermon first, we'll do that. It's important to me because I believe time honors people. And if you can't trust me to even start a service on time, how could you trust me to manage God's money? How could you trust us to do anything good If we can't even start on time I think it's one of the greatest ways to honor people So we start on time Now there's other people who don't care about starting on time That's fine, they can be wrong and I can be right I'm just kidding (laughs) It's just a preference thing But it sets a culture Now that's a small thing But here's one of the things I'm most proud of Addison is when I begin to see the culture Of more important things Things that really matter to me and matter to Jesus Begin to play out in our life of our church Without me even saying a word or organizing it Uh, For example, one of the things we're really passionate about is prayer. I believe we ought to be passionate about prayer. I preach about prayer all the time. I think it's a way that we connect with God. How could you know God if you don't pray with God? And we don't really seem like we uh, are depending upon God if we're not people of prayer. Now, what I could do as a leader, if I was doing decision and direction, is I could say we're praying every Sunday for an hour after the service. I could make that something that we did or I could allow the culture to begin to make those decisions for us. And that's why I'm so proud. Cheryl and uh, Kelly have put together a group that meets after the service uh, each Sunday, I believe. Is that right, Cheryl? Each Sunday, and they pray together. That's really cool. That's something you could be a part of. That's not something Blake Farley did. That's something that the culture of preaching God's word brought up within us. Uh, Or uh, I believe also that we ought to be learning from one another, that the greatest resource in this church is not me preaching on Sunday. This is all you get. I apologize. It's not very good compared to what it could be. I believe the greatest resource is you guys getting together, talking together, working out life together, learning these things together. And I love how uh, Leon uh, has started a group that meets together and he calls it. Let's talk about it. You can come talk about whatever you need to talk about, talking about the things that really matter in life. And they share with one another. And I believe you guys meet on Sunday night. Is that right, Leon? They meet right after church. See, I don't even know what time it starts. And that's <laughs> the coolest part of it to me, that as we preach God's word, these things just happen. And as a pastor, as a control freak, how many of you are control freaks? Raise your hand. If you tried to raise your neighbor's hand, you're probably a control freak. (laughs) As a control freak myself, I want to say, here's what needs to be done. And I want to try to force everybody into these square pegs of doing it. But if I do that, I'm not really a pastor that's doing his job. Because my job is to form you into the type of people who could follow Jesus without me. (laughs) When I'm gone. Or when you're gone. When you leave a cent for whatever reason. Or I leave. Or I die. Get hit by a bus. Today. I, I don't know what could happen. Uh, I want you to be the people who follow Jesus, not because, okay, Blake told us to do this, so we ought to do this. I want you to be the type of people who say, here's what it means to follow Jesus so I can make my own decisions based upon that. This is what we all ought to do as leaders of whatever we are leading. So those are the three ways we can lead. We can lead by direction and decision, through example, and through setting a culture. Now, in verses 4 and 5, we get... Uh, Really an example of what it looks like to be a leader how leadership works I should say And there's two things that make leadership work and two things only it's not title and it's not position It's followers who trust leaders and it's leaders who act trustworthy These are the things that glue leadership together If i'm not living trustworthy and you don't trust me, I no longer have any leadership influence over you Parents if you are not trustworthy and your kids no longer trust you just because you're their parent doesn't mean you're going to influence them they will do what they want to do. They will rebel. Now, for a short time, if you are big enough and strong enough, you can get compliance, but you will never get cooperation unless you are trustworthy and they trust you. This is what we see in verse four and five. Verse four, we see the people trusting. Verse four says, get up for this matter is your responsibility. Speaking to Ezra and we support you. Be strong and take action. Now, this is the greatest gift we can give to any leader. Children, this is the greatest gift you can give to your parents, to trust them, to say this is your responsibility. I support you, and what you say to do, I will do. I will submit even when I don't feel like submitting. Now, of course, this brings up many opportunities for abuse. Uh, Taylor and I watched the weirdest documentary I've ever seen in my life about this cult leader uh, in Utah, and uh, he, he just completely... Own these people's minds. It's weird. You should watch it. I think it's called Keep Sweet and Obey. Maybe you shouldn't watch it. I don't know. Uh, But this is what can happen if I say only that we, we submit to all leaders. But we can go on the other end and say, I don't trust any leaders. And I don't submit to anyone. And this is equally bad. In fact, I think we should be submitting ourselves to leaders. We have to. Life is impossibly difficult if you do not submit yourself to some leaders in your life. A great example of this is in the medical field. If you go to your doctor and you constantly question what your doctor is telling you to do, if you're constantly going to WebMD and searching for yourself, what you think you ought to do, and you keep coming back to your doctor and saying, well, why do we do this and not this? Your doctor will hate you, and you have a very difficult life. You've got to turn yourself over to somebody that you trust and submit your will to them. Say, if you say to take this medicine, I'm going to take this medicine, not because I understand it, but because I trust you. As a pastor, you need to find a pastor that you trust A pastor who you say, I believe what he is saying is true. Unless you want to study the Bible for 20 hours every week and argue with me and be a pain in my rear, you're more than welcome to do that. But I think the easier way would be for you to find a pastor who you actually trust, that you can submit to, that you can follow. And in your own work lives, when you're looking for a boss, you should not look for the pay that you get first and foremost. I believe probably the most important part of a job is a boss that you can trust. Somebody that you will enjoy working for. Somebody you won't second guess at every turn and every move. This is something that we must have. And the Bible says this is actually for our own good. Uh, here's what Ephesians 6.1 says when it comes to children. This is every parent's favorite verse. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. And I used to read that thinking there was like something spiritual going on there. Like if I obeyed my parents, God would give me some magic pixie dust and make my life better. And so when I needed magic pixie dust, I would obey my parents hoping God would give me something special. But I actually I think that that's it's actually a lot more practical than that. What God is saying there is that your parents have lived longer than you. And so sometimes they ask you to do things that make no sense to you, but they will eventually. And so you ought to obey them because they're your parents, because they've lived longer. You know, for example, my daughter, the only one I have right now, who's a, a four-legged furry daughter, uh, does not understand the world as well as I do. She does not understand why she can't chase a Frisbee out into the road. You know, she doesn't understand that a car will kill her. She doesn't understand why we lock her up all day long in a cage. Uh, we don't lock her up in a cage. We should, but Taylor lets her roam around the house, do what she wants. But we lock her up in the house. She doesn't get to go with us. She doesn't understand it. But she does it because I force her to do it. But even if she had the choice, she'd be wise to do it because I understand more than what she does. And the same is true with your children. People love when I compare dogs to children, so I try to do that from time to time. <laughs> James, uh, or rather 1 Peter 3.7 uh, says that we've got to be careful with this as leaders. Again, this is a responsibility when people trust you. Uh, because God is on the side of those who are oppressed. God is on the side of those who are submitting. So it's not like as a leader I can just use this to my advantage and I'll get away with it for all eternity. As a leader, I know that I stand before God. In uh, 1 Peter 3.7, in the context of marriage, says it this way. It says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. It's not weaker like mentally. It just means in an arm wrestling match, generally the husband would win. Showing them honor as co-heirs of grace so that... Your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, Peter is saying you can use your physical strength to beat your wife around to get her to do what you want her to do. But you better, you better believe you're not going to get away with it because you've got to deal with me. I'm not going to answer your prayers if you're living in this way. So that's the first part of leadership is we've got to trust our leaders. And this is very hard for us in a culture that is dominated uh, by individual expression. Uh, This is what sociologists have termed kind of the the mood of the day. And it's a brand new mood, and that is that we put our feelings and our desires above all else. It's never been seen before in human history. It's it's a really new thing. Normally in human history, if you go back, people who were not even religious people had commitments outside of themselves. You know, They they were committed to their family. They put their family's well-being above themselves. So, for instance, if they were in a job that they hated, uh, today people would say quit that job and go find a job you like and your family can deal with it. To whereas, if you were to go back 100 years, people would say, I don't really like my job, but I need to provide for my family. And I need to think about my children and my grandchildren. And so I put that commitment above the commitment of my own feelings. And in a religious sense, as Christians, what ought we to do? Whose commitment ought to be primary in our lives? The Jesus Christ. Yes, the king of our lives. His what he says is true ought to be true over what we say. It doesn't matter what our intellect says or what our feelings say. We obey even when it doesn't make sense. We trust and this is very hard for us in this culture, but we must do it. We must trust people because it will go well for us if we do. And the other side of that was that we must be trustworthy. I love what Ezra does. I, this is great writing here because verse 4 says, get up. And then verse 5 says, then Ezra got up and made the leading priests, Levites, and all Israel take an oath to do what had been said. So they took the oath. And here's the truth of life. You cannot force people to trust you. There's nothing I can do to make you trust me more. All I can do is be trustworthy. All I can do is say what I'm going to do and then do it. And this is such an important characteristic to have in this world, to be successful in this world, however you define success. You don't want to be the type of person who says they're going to do something and then you consistently don't do what you say you're going to do because trust is very hard to earn and it is very easy to lose. If I lose your trust, it will take me years to earn the trust back that I probably lost in about 15 minutes. This is just the way that it is. We cannot decide whether or not people trust us, but we can decide to be trustworthy. And if you are single and you're looking to be married, I can tell you the greatest advice is to find somebody who's trustworthy and to be trustworthy. Do not marry somebody who doesn't do what they say they're going to do. Otherwise, you will be a parent of that child and not a spouse of that man or that woman. You do not want to marry a child. You want to marry somebody who does what they say they're going to do. You want to marry somebody who's trustworthy. And when you're looking for a church family, you ought to try to find a pastor who is trustworthy. Does he do what he says he's going to do? Does he preach about one thing on Sunday and then I see him on Monday and he lives something completely different? Does he do what he says he's going to do? These are the things we ought to look for in our leaders and they're the kind of leaders we ought to try to be. I love what Timothy says and I'm coming near the end. So band, if you guys want to go ahead and come back up. In First Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's giving him his charge to ministry. He's saying, here's what you ought to do. And I find it interesting that Paul doesn't say, now throw your weight around and force people to trust you. Go for compliance. No, Paul says you can't do that. All you can do is be trustworthy. First Timothy 4, 1-5, it says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of His appearing and His kingdom... Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's really encouraging for a guy like me who stands up here and says a lot of things that make a lot of people mad. In fact, if I do my job right, I should make everybody mad about once a week. (laughs) Because I'm not a politician on one side or the other of the aisle. And culture often presents black and white options. And Jesus often has a gray option. There's usually a third way that Jesus says. That's why everybody wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus united the ununitable. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Roman Empire all hated each other until Jesus showed up. And they said, we all agree on one thing. This guy needs to die. And then Jesus says, all right, Blake, now I make you a minister. You You have the same kind of tasks that I have. And I say, thank you, Jesus. And I go out. But here's what Paul says. He says, look, when people turn away, when people don't trust you, as long as you're being trustworthy, it has nothing to do with you. That has everything to do with them and their hearts. What your responsibility is, Blake, what your responsibility is as parents or as leaders of whatever God has given you leadership over is not what other people do. But your responsibility is for you to be trustworthy, to do the work that God has given you to do, to not be distracted by the world, but to be fearless and courageous in what God has called you to do. And friends, the greatest example we have a leader of a leader is not me. And it's not Ezra, because Ezra and Blake Farley were both sinners and we both would do things, and I do do things, that would cause you maybe not to trust me as much as you used to. If you follow me long enough, you will be disappointed. But Jesus came as God in the flesh, and He walked amongst us, and He showed us what leadership looks like. And I want to end with these words that Jesus says to His disciples. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42-45. through 45, The disciples are arguing about who gets to be on the throne next to Jesus in the kingdom. You know, Jesus, when you come in and you destroy the Roman Empire, you crush their teeth. I want to be right beside you. And this is my brother, and I want him to be on the other side. And the other disciples, you know, they can they can do whatever, but we just we want to be right next to you. You get to be the king. We're not trying to take that, but we just we want to be in positions of leadership. And Jesus says, alright, come here boys. And he draws them all in and he says, now I don't think you guys understand what leadership is. The world presents a view of leadership that is high and lofty, something to, to aspire to because of your own personal benefit. But that's not how I do leadership. When I give you leadership, it's a responsibility. It's a way in which you serve people, not have people serve you. And here's what Jesus says. And our world would be so much better if we just listen to these words. Verse 42, Jesus called them, them being the disciples, over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whomever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, why can we trust Jesus to be our ultimate leader? Because he has proven himself to be ultimately trustworthy had the power of God. And yet, what does he do? He walks a lowly life, living a life you and I could not live. And he dies a death he did not deserve for the sake of Blake Farley and for the sake of everybody in this room so that we might freely follow him and imitate his example. So friends, today, as I close this sermon, I'm not calling you to trust in me. I'm calling you to trust in Jesus and in his leadership over your life. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you've loved us enough to send your one and only son to To come live the life we could not live and to die the death that we deserve to die so that we might go from enemies of God to children of God. We might be saved from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. God, that we might identify primarily as your children. What an amazing thing to identify in. That everywhere I go, I know that I am a child of the one true God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. God, please allow me to trust you. And God, I pray that you'd open the eyes and the hearts of people in this room, that they might trust in you as the leader of their life. And right now, friends, if you would, eyes closed, head bowed. Take about 20 seconds and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message today? Father, I pray that you give us the courage to obey what you call us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks.